Welcome to The Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce, separation and co-parenting here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and driving for reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce, separation and co-parenting from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach, co-founder of Amicable, the divorce services company, and host of this, The Divorce Podcast. In this episode, I was joined by Mark Groves, who is a human connection specialist, speaker, writer, and motivator. Mark founded Create the Love, a platform that guides people to design the life and love they long for, following on from his own rock bottom when his relationship ended. He hosts the Mark Groves podcast and has a significant following on social media, where he shares his insights into relationships and connection. This episode was such a joy to record, and we explored how to heal from a breakup or a separation. We also looked at the context of marriage and relationships, including how society perpetuates bad breakups by reinforcing the shame and the guilt on those of us going through them. Mark explained the paradox of not having important conversations out of fear of losing the relationship, when in reality, silence often contributes to the relationship breakdown itself. We looked at whether the way people deal with breakups is gendered and how we can do more to help cultivate healthy relationships, both individually and as a society. We agreed that a relationship ending is not a failure. I'm going to say that again. A relationship ending is not a failure. Rather, it's an opportunity for self-exploration and growth. And we shared the hope that we can all become less judgmental when it comes to separation and breakups. If you really loved this episode or want to hear more episodes like this, then please make sure to rate us on your preferred listening platform. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's a pleasure to have you and thank you for agreeing to join us. I guess the first question, I am sure you get asked this a lot, but describe in your own words for us, what is a human connection specialist? How are you different from a relationship coach? Well, so much of my work at the beginning, you know, early in my life, in my late teens, 20s, was actually in sales. It was in studying human behavior, how to change it, you know, ultimately how to manipulate it if we're, you know, being honest about it, how to get someone to choose one product over another. So I was really obsessed with understanding how to do that. And it wasn't until my late 20s when a relationship ended that I thought to myself, why am I so good at talking about everything but my feelings? Like, that's not a skill set issue. There's something deeper going on here. And I felt as though I'd been lied to my whole life about relationships. And so I really wanted to study. At the time, I was a pharmaceutical rep. And so I really enjoyed reading and understanding clinical trials and scientific data. And so I started to study and try to deeply understand from the intellectual perspective, romantic relationships. Why do they end? Why do they not? Why do we stay with people when we're not happy? Why, when they end, do we see people as failures? You know, that was a really interesting thing to me that in the moment I felt most connected to myself, I actually felt like I belonged the least. And that journey. So human connection really is about studying everything to do with how we relate. You know, our romantic relationships are magnifying glasses to our relational challenges. But if you look at, you know, if you have poor boundaries in 
romantic relationships, you'll certainly have poor boundaries with work. So, you know, it's kind of that saying how we do one thing is how we do everything. And so really my work it looks at attachment styles and leadership. It looks at team dynamics, which is not totally dissimilar to family dynamics and the roles we take. So it just kind of encompasses all of it. Okay. You said during that kind of intro there that you felt you'd been lied to all of your life. Just to expand on that, what had not been happening from a truth-telling perspective from for you? Yeah, well, when I got engaged, you know, prior to getting engaged, I didn't actually want to get engaged. And I thought to myself, well, why did I get engaged if I didn't want to? That doesn't make any sense. Why would someone spend money to do something like that? You know, what is the unconscious driving force that makes not doing it less attractive than maintaining that direction? So how I felt I was lied to is I was raised Catholic. So I was raised in a Catholic school. My mom is actually from Dublin. And, and you know, that's like Catholic on Catholic steroids. I'm sure people in the UK can understand <laughs> yeah, can. what I'm talking about too. And it was just like in my schooling, I was essentially taught, like I think most people are, get married by a certain age, have kids by a certain age. And if, you know, if you're male, become a good provider. If you're female, become a caretaker. And those messages have obviously shifted a little bit for the most part, but not really in deeply what's embedded in the pathways we choose in our life or are told to choose. And so I felt like what I'd observed around me was you get married and you stay in love and you stay with that person forever. And that was the narrative I was told explicitly in my Catholic school. But then when I broke off that engagement, I thought, wow, I've I've been missing all these divorces that are happening around me. I've been missing all these people who are together for 75 years, but don't even like each other. You know, like, why have I missed all that? And that was not a conversation that was happening. It was like, let's pay attention to all these relationships that work. And let's not look over here at the stuff that we don't know how to process or handle. And and so that's where I felt the the lying. It wasn't explicit you know, intentional lying. It was just that how society does, we avoid the truths we don't like. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because we, there's still a deep sense of shame. You, I mean, you called it failure, failure, shame, whatever, when relationships break down, but in a society and in a, a world where we might live till we're now 90, hundred, is it reasonable to expect that we'll only have one relationship and therefore we won't all experience you know transitioning from one relationship to another well, why is there still such a culture of shame and failure around the end of a relationship yeah isn't it fascinating to explore and you only really get to that exploration when you're facing the possibility of one uh, and you wonder why do we stay in toxic relationships why do we stay in relationships that don't serve us if you look at the framing, you know, the history of marriage was the first thing I studied. And I read the book from Stephanie Kuntz, who's a marriage historian. And she talks about how the real reason marriage was invented was to get more in-laws. So, you know, so that you could go further in, you know, one tribe, your daughter married a son from another tribe, and, and you could share resources within those tribes, things like that. So you look at the premise of why marriage was created, and then you look at how as a society, you really couldn't get divorced until really the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, depending on what state or country we're looking at. And if you wanted to get divorced, it had to be, it had to often be approved by the state, which is crazy to think about. Well, you say it's crazy to think about, but until the 6th of April this year, that was still the case in England and Wales. We've only just moved to our no-fault system 
And prior to that, we had to still say, our relationship has broken down. Please, can the court approve that our relationship has broken down and therefore we can divorce? So it's very recent, this idea that you should just be able to leave a marriage because one of you feels it's over without having to prove anything. So yeah, I, it's scary. But yes, yeah, sorry, I interrupted. Go on. No, no, a very important point. And so I looked at, okay, well, in society, we have a hierarchy that we've created around relational status. So if you're married, you're better than someone who's engaged. If you're engaged, you're better than someone who's dating. If you're dating, you're better than someone who's single. And if you're divorced, you're often even cast below. As if there's something wrong with you if you're single, but if you're divorced, you couldn't make this magical, monogamous, lifelong relationship work. What's wrong with you? And think of the language that we use with people. We say, have you found someone yet? You know, you're too picky. Where, you know, why are you single? All this language confers that the real intention you should have is to find a relationship. So I'll stop asking you these questions. The other thing is that we celebrate anniversaries. Listen, relational length is certainly a sign of relational success, but it's not the sign of relational success. You know, why are we not celebrating where we go deeper intimately, where we handle conflict in a different way, where we actually celebrate relational depth. All of this to say that what it says is that being in a relationship means like your relationship status is evident that you are worthy of being chosen. And for fear of getting divorced or a relationship ending, which we've all said is sort of the ultimate failure of relationship. And I thought, can't an ending actually be love? Like, can't it actually be a sign of self-reclamation, of, of raising of a standard, of maybe generations, if you look up your paternal or and maternal tree, that you see that you're the first person in your family lineage to finally say no more of this bullshit? And I see all of, that's why I don't see relation to, ship endings as failures. I, I see them as successes and they're liberating even if we don't know it yet. That's the thing that's crazy about it is when we look at the process of how we go through a divorce, that's obviously important. How we end a relationship matters. There's a great quote, I forget who it's by, but it says you could tell a lot about someone by how they end things. And I think that's very true because we're so averse to endings, we don't often end them with grace because the ending is so associated with shame that we don't know how to hold the shame that comes with it as opposed to explore the shame and recognize that so much of it is actually not ours. It's society's expectations. And all of this, how it influences our relating is that because I'm afraid of ending a relationship, it actually means I'm going to avoid conversations that might end it or make it have more friction. Those are actually the conversations that deepen the relationship. So there's an interesting paradox that we're always stuck in. And it's how do I keep this relationship going? Because the alternative is too much to confront, but yet I'm imprisoning myself in a space where I can't even fully self-express. So we don't actually even feel like we're liberated in the very relationship. And you think about the vows that we have often used and some people still use, honor and obey is certainly one that needs some editing. But the other one is till death do us part. Listen, I am certainly a believer that as Jordan Peterson says, commitment only works if you do it. And Till death to us part, I've really thought about, like, if you got married at 18 or you got married at 24 or you got married at, you know, 27, is till death to us part the mortal death? 
like your actual literal death, or is it the death of the part of you that chose the relationship at the time? And that's why all relationships should actually celebrate the mortality of the parts of ourselves that chose each other so that we can realize, you know, Alexander Solomon, a therapist, talks about how throughout our lifetime, we'll have many marriages and sometimes it'll be to the same person. And I think that really speaks to hopefully where we can get to relationally, where we're actually, our relationships are not the place we go for our dreams to die, but for them to be born as well as the best parts of ourselves. And for me, I guess as well, from a psychotherapeutic background, you're looking at growth and the growth of two people and people grow at different times and at different rates. And if one person's growth is outstripping another, sometimes it's very hard to to keep a relationship going when that's happening. And that you can't possibly know someone's growth trajectory when you decide to marry each other, no matter what age you are. So I think the idea of one relationship across a lifetime to me feels unlikely at best and like a rod for society's back at at worst. I I think if we could get to a place in the space where transitioning between relationships, we got better at that as a society, I think that would make a lot more people a lot happier. And I, you know, I think about that quite a lot. I just think about multiple relationships within a lifetime. No one talks about it in those terms, do they? Because like you say, there's this still this very old fashioned expectation that you'll marry once. And I guess when life expectancy was 30, if you were very lucky, that wasn't such a bad notion. But now with life expectancy where it is, the idea that you can stay in one relationship for all of that time is is quite unbelievable for a, a lot of people, I think. So, Yeah, I think there's so many confounding things there too, in a, in a way of just giving more context too, is that one, the skill set that was required to hold relationships together for a shorter period of time, and also when, you know, Esther Perel talks about how we look for from a relationship, what we used to get from a village, you know, so there's a lot of expectations. There's also not a newly, there's a lot of people now developing the skill set that's required to be ever changing and ever moving. You also have the empowerment and the reclamation and all of that of women, which the relationships were not designed to hold (laughs) two significant voices. They you know, part of the design of the relationship was, um, and in the structure of patriarchy, was that the male had the voice and made the decisions. And that didn't leave a lot of room for a woman in a heteronormative perspective. And so, you know, we have to shift, we have to shift our skill sets, we have to shift how we orient in relationships. And, you know, when you think about the idea that you have to stay with someone, that language because of the commitment you made, as opposed to recognizing that you're choosing to stay with someone. Have to is the death of everything. Yeah, should. Choose to, right? (laughs) Like your partner can leave you. (laughs) Right, right. And your partner can literally leave you in any moment. If you know that and you own that, then you realize that every day they are choosing you. What a privilege that is. How might we show up differently? Just recognizing that truth you know, and it seems like our vows have negated that very real, beautiful truth that out of all the people in the world, they choose you. Wow. What a beautiful thing. It just struck me as well when you were talking before about not wanting to confront how you're feeling within a relationship. Do you think that is a gendered perspective? So, because I, I you know, when I talk to, say, 
typically women clients or customers, they, they're much more inclined to express the frustration that their partner won't talk rather than it's them that won't confront or talk when things are not going right in a, a relationship. So is there something gendered about that? Or do you think as a society, actually, it's something slightly less obvious? It's not just a sort of trite gender division, but actually all people struggle with talking when relationships are in difficulty. No, I think you nail it. I mean, women are generally much more emotionally adept. They're a more accurate barometer to the temperature of the relationship. I mean, that's shown in the data. They initiate divorce more than men. By the time they say, I feel disconnected or we need to read this book, it takes about two years till they walk out the door. And when they do, they're gone, you know, and women in turn to their partner, I think it's something like 35% of the time about emotional things and they turn to friends the other time. Men tend to turn to their partners about, I think it's around 65, 67% of the time. So when a male loses a relationship, he often loses his emotional support and that's why men are more likely to get remarried. And you think about how we're socialized. I mean, men are not socialized to be emotional. If anything, we've taught men that emotionality is in direct opposition with masculinity. And so the very thing our partners need from us most is actually the thing that makes us least masculine. And so I think we haven't learned that those two things are actually not connected at all, emotionality and masculinity. But it's a complex thing because, of course, women still choose men who are hypermasculine. So, you know, in evolutionarily, men want to be... Is that, is that mixed messages, in other words? <laughs> well, yeah, because when a male is seen as highly emotional or cries in front of his partner, Brene Brown's work shows that the woman actually loses respect for her partner. So you're in this strange paradox. But I think the other thing, too, is that because, you know, I really believe that emotion is the currency of the future relationally. And the ability to have emotional intelligence, be able to hold communication and conversation. I mean, it's important. It's probably the most important skill you'll ever develop in your life. It'll have the most effect on your health and your work and your all your relationships. With all that said, you know, it requires humility to hear your partner tell you that you need to change or you feel disconnected or something, hopefully in, in delivered in a in a way that's not triggering too much defensiveness. You have to be able to accept that there's something you need to change. And I don't think in general, this could be true of any gender, in general, men have a large capacity for shame because the idea that I'm letting my partner down or I'm not a rock is not conditioned to hold. So yeah, I think you nailed it. It's definitely gendered. And I'm sure there's women listening who can relate to that too, saying, I'm just not good at talking about how I feel, which that identity alone makes it so you don't have to be. So it also becomes a comfortable place to be. And just thinking about breakups kind of more generally, what's going on in a breakup emotionally for people? Why do you think they're so painful? I mean, yeah, I guess I get that we're not very good at talking about our feelings. And therefore, if you're suddenly experiencing quite extreme feelings, you know, quite extreme highs or quite extreme lows as you go through a breakup, we're in unfamiliar territory. But what is it that makes a breakup so painful? What are we perceiving that we're losing, giving up or whatever? Because we, we talked didn't we, at the beginning that actually it can be seen in quite the opposite way as a the next step of the future of the freeing. But we don't see it like that, do we? We tend to no, we wallow. We don't. And, you know, if a, if a relationship isn't for another person, it's not for you. 
you know, that's a real simple truth that we all need to know. You know, a qualifier for someone being your partner is they want to be your partner, you know, and because, you know, I'm sure people listening to this podcast are on the receiving end or the delivering end, but both sides of the divorce. And I th- there's a lot of processes that go on when we get divorced. One, our identity is totally shattered. I go from being in a relationship to not being in one. I go from now probably identifying as being divorced. And because we've associated so many poor judgments with someone who's divorced, which I say, hey, use that judgment as fuel, rocket fuel to say like, my partner, she's divorced before I met her. It's actually one of the my most favorite things about her because it was the way that she woke up. It was the way, you know, I don't think that there is a more potent and frequent invitation to personal growth and expansion than in divorce. I don't try to save people from the grief of their breakups because I know the value of it. I know the value through my own breakups of how much it transformed my life and how much it made me find my voice and actually heal stuff. You know, I think a lot of new grief is actually old grief. And, you know, you have a lot of biological processes going on during a divorce. You have, you know, in some of the research, they look at what parts of the brains of people light up when they go through divorce. And it's the same parts of people who are widowed, people who are addicts. And so in some way, we are getting out of an addiction. And that's often why we ruminate and we catastrophize and we can't let them go. And so there's a biological process where there is an ending and it's a very deep one. And then there's the other process that what will my life be now? You know, there's a story that we had in our minds and maybe our parents got divorced and we said, I never want to be like them. I never want my kids to go through that. And truthfully, we have to learn the skills so we don't get to those places by observing those places. But that's even to confer or ideate that being divorced is bad. I don't love that language ever because if you're divorced, why is that bad? Like to me, that idea that relational endings is failure is just such a toxic idea because, you know, in a hierarchy of how we might see relationship, we think that for kids, parents being together is parents better than parents being apart. And certainly there's a value to having stable partners, parents who love each other. But I would say the next alternative is apart and love each other. Together and hate each other and apart and hate each other, there's no actual difference. Uh, All it teaches kids is that you should stay in dysfunctional things and treat the person that you had a kid with, that who you are parenting, you're teaching them that it's okay to disrespect other people and and disrespect yourself in the process. So that's a long answer to your simple question. But do you think there's a, I mean, you've described what I would consider to be a healthy breakup. So the process that you went through of self-reflection and growth, that we would we would call that a healthy breakup. Do you think there are unhealthy breakups? And, and what determines whether you go down a path of a healthy breakup or an unhealthy breakup? Well, if you reject the reality that you're breaking up, then it's going to be unhealthy because you're not accepting reality. And so much of the source of our addictions is not accepting reality. You know, so much of the, you know, if you're, if you look back upon your relationship, the one of the best things you can do is say, how did I contribute to this outcome? And even if it ended with the other person cheating, you still contribute to the outcome. Again, I'm speaking outside of like narcissism and sociopathy. So those deserve their own podcast. But, you know, I remember interviewing this woman named Yoda, and which is a great name for what she said. And she said to me that 
she heard once this idea that you should leave your relationship as you would leave a house, that you would fix it up for the next person. And what an interesting way of looking at leaving a partnership. When my partnership ended with my now fiance, but previous, we call it relationship 1.0, we left that with grace. It was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because it was so against what I've been taught. And this idea that with my hurt, I would process it with her because it was, you know, she had the ability to do that. That's not for everybody. It was such a different process to do and that it could be done with love. I mean, what a different idea. And I think when we aren't willing to turn towards the truth of the ending, when there's a lot of blame, there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of anger, all of those are healthy. I'm not saying we should bypass them. I'm saying we should actually use them. We should be informed by them. You know, often people go through breakups and stay in contact with their ex forever. Or they, you know, and they stay hoping that things will change. None of that is actually healthy for anybody. So, you know, I uh, going through, I, I don't know that there's a specific definition of what going through a bad breakup is, but I think we can all individually identify if we've gone through a bad breakup, which I certainly have. And when we actually turn towards the experience and ask, what can it teach us? How might it grow us? And that's such a different perspective. I didn't look at my breakup when I was 19 through that lens. I found the bottom of a pint glass quite, you know, quite easing on my, on my feelings. And so I would also say that going through a breakup actually requires sobriety. And people might not like hearing that, but that's actually true because then you can feel the feelings. And it doesn't mean you know, you need to sit and marinate in every feeling. and But you got to find other ways to cope, other healthy ways to cope. Alcohol, drugs, they're not useful ways to cope. They actually make the dark darker, even though it might not seem like it in the moment. And what do you tell people in terms of healthy ways of coping? Meditation, exercise, good food. You know, so much of the time when we're going through change, we throw away the things that we need most. And in transformational spaces, they would call it anchors. They're like the things that keep us grounded in ourselves. They remind us that we're still choosing expansion despite the reason we want to collapse. You know, so much of pain is really narcissistic. And, I, and I'll explain what I mean by that, which is that when we're going through pain, we often feel like I'm the only one. I'm the only one who knows this. No one else has understood this. And so we tend to isolate ourselves more. But actually, if we start to share what we're going through, we start to ask friends for support. We maybe join even groups, you know, listen to the podcast. You start to see like, oh, there's other people like me. Oh, wow. Now I can listen to their journey. And that can be such a state of hope, you know, to be able to be able to hear someone else turn a breakup into one of the most transformational moments of their life. We might not be able to process that when we're in the space of the darkness. And, you know, it's it's sometimes just that little glimmer of light that we're like, oh, there is something possible here. And I, I feel like our soul is speaking to us in those moments saying like, keep going, keep going, keep going, be informed, be informed, be informed. Like there's there's always something greater being asked to be born of us if we'll listen. And on that sort of note of like relationships and, and being able to navigate the ending of them positively, can you do that even if you're with a toxic partner? So are, are there toxic relationships or are there just toxic people? Or, <laughs> and if you happen to be in one of those awful relationships where 
you are with somebody who is quite toxic. I mean, you described narcissistic personalities or, you know, borderline personality disorder, whatever label or sociopathy, whatever label you want to put on it, just plain wrong <laughs> Is there still a positive way out for you if you're in that in a relationship with somebody like that? Well, the positive way out is the reclamation of self. You know, the as you said, is it toxic people or toxic relationships? Well, toxic people are in toxic relationships. And if we're part of a relationship with a toxic person, we are in a toxic dynamic. So we have to take responsibility for maybe it's our enabling, maybe it's our boundarylessness. You know, we have to start to ask ourselves, why am I a match for this person? And that's not too remove the pain of the experience or to say one is not the victim of an experience because we certainly can be and are. And how do I become empowered through that? So the healthy transition through that type of breakup, because you're not going to sit down and have a closing ceremony with a narcissist. You're not going to sit down and, you know, process in a healthy way, someone who is manipulative and emotionally or physically abusive. It requires that we draw very clear boundaries. And that is actually the expansive part of the breakup is like the breakup was enough for me to finally say, I'm going to change how I orient the people. I'm going to draw this beautiful. I mean, that's what boundaries do is they draw a circle around who we are and they say, these are the type of behaviors I'm going to allow from them, but also from myself. You know, we think boundaries are often about keeping behaviors out, but they're also about keeping behaviors in. And that if there's one thing that we get through that transition with, if we've been in toxic relationships, it is to finally recognize no more. Like, oh, like what a beautiful moment. And of course, the hard part of that is usually that beautiful moment comes with maybe one of the most painful moments. And so there's a both end. We need to be able to honor the pain of the ending, the pain of the awareness of what we've perhaps allowed and, you know, we might need support through that and what is possible because whenever something ends, we stop maybe running from a truth or running from the idea that a relationship is going to end or running from what we're tolerating to actually stopping and turning around and facing the thing. Probably something that we learned as a kid to not face or confront. And so that's why I think it's so, you know, when you ask someone to finally set a boundary I recognize the deep complexity and courage and bravery that's required to end something that's toxic or to end a behavior that's familiar and to step into a space that is unknown and to maybe lay a boundary for the first time ever in your lineage. Like to me, I'm like, whoa, like talk about an alchemical transformative experience where, you know, if you're into the more esoteric, you could probably have a standing ovation from all your ancestors in that moment who are like, finally. <laughs> Just tell us briefly then, Mark, we, we're coming up to the end, but how do you work with people then? What sort of support do you give people? What do you do? What would, you know, taking you up on your services look like? Yeah, well, I have um, I have a podcast as well where I navigate all sorts of relational things. And that's certainly a large resource for people. I have a breakup course that's a five-week course. And I designed it around the principles of the five stages of grief, but also post-traumatic growth. So it walks you through turning this experience into an expansive one and positioning people to make this act a place where, wow, like it, it finally mattered enough 
that you're willing to change what this story means for you. That this isn't the point where everything ended, but actually the point where everything continued or began. And so I have a breakup course. I think it's, you can just go to breakuprebirth.com. And I mean, I have courses on dating, how to heal codependency, lots of different things. So you can all check those out at createthelove.com. That's brilliant. And how can we follow you and find out more? You can find me on Create the Love at Instagram. That's pretty much the main place I hang out. And Facebook. Fabulous. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Mark. Thanks so much for your time today. Um, you can find out more about me on Twitter. I'm at Kate underscore daily. You can hear about new podcast episodes by following at divorce underscore podcast. And if you enjoyed listening to Mark and to this podcast, then you can subscribe for updates for other podcasts coming up by visiting the divorcepodcast.com. Mark, a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you too for listening. <music>